In this episode of Data Framed, a Data Camp podcast, I'll be speaking with Anthony Goldblum, CEO of Kaggle. If you thought that Kaggle was merely a platform for machine learning competitions, prepare to have your mind blown. Because these ML comps account for less than a third of the activity on Kaggle today. Anthony and I will discuss Kaggle kernels for reproducible data science and the evolution of the Kaggle public data platform. To do so, we'll make tours through the genesis of Kaggle and how Anthony managed to solve the cold start problem of building a two-sided marketplace. We'll discuss the exciting implications of Kaggle's recent acquisition by Google for the future of cloud-based data science, and we'll hear why Python is dominating so much on Kaggle. Before jumping into the interview, I want to remind you all to subscribe to Data Framed on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, we're everywhere. Do subscribe and we all win. Also, write us a review on iTunes. It will help us to keep on keeping on. I may even read your review on the show in the future. So I'm going to read one review now before jumping into the interview with Anthony. This review is by somebody calling themselves Bring On More Frogs. And the review is titled Catnip for Data Nerds. The review reads, I'm getting many more dinner party invites since I started listening. I'd have given six out of five if there was more discussion of Hugo's beard. Well, there you go, folks, and thanks for the great review, Bring On More Frogs. I hope to discuss more about my beard soon. I'm Hugo Bown Anderson, a data scientist at Data Camp, and this is Data Framed. Welcome to Data Framed, a weekly Data Camp podcast exploring what data science looks like on the ground for working data scientists and what problems it can solve. I'm your host, Hugo Bown Anderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugo Bound and Datacamp at Datacamp. You can find all our episodes and show notes at datacamp.com slash community slash podcast. Hi, Anthony, and welcome to Data Framed. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the, on the show, and I'm really excited to talk about your work at, at, at Kaggle and, and the direction in which Kaggle's heading. But before that, I think I'd, I'd like to hear about how you got involved in data science because a lot of people working in the data science space now approach it from a multitude of different directions. And I'd like to know a bit about your journey, how you arrived at where you are. Yeah, sure. So uh, at university or college to an American audience, uh, I studied econometrics, which is basically statistics uh, applied to to kind of economic problems. My first job out of college was at the Australian Treasury. Uh, I worked in a macro econometric forecasting group and building forecasting models to forecast GDP, inflation, and unemployment. The, the way uh, I got to Kaggle, so I, was, I love statistics and I love programming. Both of them were sort of in, independent independently interesting for me. You know, statistics was my profession. Programming was a hobby. In, I think it was 2007, uh, I won an internship to The Economist magazine and I pitched a piece to my editor about predictive modeling. I sort of you know, thought that was the future and he said I could write it. And, you know, it was a really nice opportunity because I could call people up. I could say, hi, it's Anthony Goldman from The Economist. I'd like to interview XYZ. And I got to speak to people who were doing, you know, I guess what we'd now call data science at Tesco and data science at for the Obama campaign. And that's where I really, I guess, got exposure to the, the application of, I guess, statistical techniques to business and how I you know, went from being a, an econometrician or a statistician focused on economic modeling to somebody who was more interested in use cases outside of just plain econometrics. Yeah, and I think that's quite quite interesting because econometrics is one of the fields which, of course, predates data science. But a lot of the techniques we see emerging and becoming commonplace in data science are, are, are well known, have been used for some time in in econometrics and the type of forecasting you were doing. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, my favorite definition of data science is somebody who knows more programming than a statistician and more statistics than a programmer. And I would say I definitely fit that criteria. So through my uh, econometrics, I was schooled in you know classical statistical techniques, but as you know, I had a uni job as a programmer. I loved programming, uh, and so I really did fit you know, the, the, those those two buckets. And when working as an econometrician, is that is that how you say it? Yeah, no, that's correct. That's a good right pronunciation. Did you were you programming as well in in that position? The specific group I worked on was um, the modeling group, and so most people were using Excel. Most people in my division were were using Excel. The group I was in had a model that basically knitted all the pieces of the Australian economy together. 
uh, and you could not do that. That was too complex to do in Excel. We were using a, um, I think, a, I forget exactly. The, the language is called TSP. It was like a statistical modeling language. I don't know how widely it was used. It was a really crappy, awful uh, programming language. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that's what the model was written in. And so that's what we were using. I think given, given my time again, it would have been much, much more pleasant to be working in Python than TSP. For sure. So going from econometrics and writing for The Economist, how was Kaggle born? Yeah, actually, um, uh, the inspiration for Kaggle came out of that internship at The Economist. So as I said, I felt like I was interviewing these people from Tesco and the Obama campaign, etc. And I felt like I was a good programmer, a good statistician. If you could give me a chance on some of those problems, I knew I'd do a good job. But I also knew that if I wasn't calling up as Anthony Goldman from The Economist, but just you know the random person, I wouldn't have had the opportunity. Uh, in the meantime, I'd seen every year the KDD conference uh, had run these machine learning competitions where the winner got a got to present at the conference, and I always thought that was a very meritocratic way to decide who who would get to speak at the the KDD conference. Similarly, uh, Netflix ran a prize. I think it started in 2007. Uh, so they originally ran a KDD Cup. I think they ran the 2006 KDD Cup, uh, and then following up up from that, they they launched a one million dollar prize, and so. The, the idea of competitions uh, as a way to get data science problems solved ha- had been in the air for quite a while. Actually, the first KDD Cup, I think, ran in 1997. So it had been in the air for a while. And yeah, as I said, I, I was uh, you know I was trying to solve the, basically a problem for myself. I felt like I was a good statistician, a good programmer. If I could have the opportunity to work on interesting problems I, that I was interviewing people about, I would have really enjoyed it. But if I contacted the same people in another setting, wouldn't have had the opportunity and felt like competitions were a really nice way to solve that problem to give me access uh, to companies' data sets and, and the ability to show what I was capable of. Uh, of course, the ar- irony is there are two two ironies that come of this. One is I've never really seriously competed in a competition. And unfortunately, I've subsequently learned that I'm not as good a statistician or programmer as I thought I, I was. Uh, the c- quality of the stuff that comes out of the ca- Kaggle community is just outstanding. Uh, and be- beyond, unfortunately, I think what I, I was capable of. For sure. And I think this, the idea of these machine learning and data science competitions is, is very timely as well, because one thing it's doing is really crowdsourcing data science solutions and data science techniques, which, you know, with the advent of Web 2.0 and online capabilities, we see everywhere this idea of using the internet to, to crowdsource, right? I, I used to joke that when we were pitching VCs very early on in Kaggle's life, that you could have, if you had like a buzzword a buzzword machine that just spat out random startup ideas that crowdsourcing data science would have to be uh, one of the buzzwords, that would, one of the startup ideas that would be generated by this buzzword generating startup machine. That's hilarious. So then what, what happened with Kaggle? Tell, tell me a bit about its early days and, and where it's heading now. So the very, very early uh, competitions that Kaggle ran were mostly for researchers. So I remember the first competition of any consequence, I think it was actually the second competition we ever ran, was taking genetic markers and trying to predict the progression of HIV viral load. Uh, so you can live a long life with HIV or you can de- deteriorate quickly. Uh, and this is partially governed by genetic markers. This is a problem that had been studied in the literature for you know some period of time and a certain number of markers were found. You could predict with a certain level of accuracy. And it was a really amazing result. I think at the time, Kaggle had about 100 members. But even within that 170 uh, teams competed in that competition. Um, and out of that 70 teams, four or five had outperformed the best of the scientific literature, which is you know, pretty remarkable. As I said, this was not an unstudied problem. That competition got featured in Science Magazine, I think in 2011. And off the back of the Science Magazine article, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, California, approached Kaggle with a problem around taking images of the galaxy and trying to basically measure the ellipticity of galaxies very precisely. If you could measure the ellipticity of galaxies very precisely, you could figure out what the dark matter distribution was between the observer and the galaxy. And if you could do do, do that, you, you could basically create a, a dark matter map of the universe. So it's a very important problem in physics. Again, the JPL had worked on it for some period of time. The f- physics literature had worked on it for some period of time. By then, you know, maybe Kaggle had five or 600 members. Quite a few uh, outperformed the best that NASA's JPL had been able to do. And that NASA was a very, very important uh, customer for Kaggle. The, they were... You know, NASA are uh, a very good brand and they were a bridge between 
what that the academic customers that Cable had in the very early days to the Fortune 500. Um, our first Fortune 500 customer was Allstate, the insurance company. And I think it was easier for our internal advocate at Allstate to be able to say, hey, we should put up some of our claims prediction models here. Uh, if it's good enough for NASA, you know, surely we can try it out. And Allstate was a, a very good result and that got the ball rolling. Particularly, we have a very good footprint in insurance today, but more generally among the Fortune 500 to get them starting to use Kaggle as a tool in their data science toolkit. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I think looking at Kaggle today, people may not realize that the first competitions weren't actually in an industrial setting. They were in basic scientific research. And even before that, I, I, I created the very first Kaggle competition myself. It was to predict the, the voting at the Eurovision Song Contest. And the idea in starting any two-sided marketplace, which essentially is how, you know, what the competition business was, is you've got to build one side before the other. You have this cold start problem, right? You, you, no one is going to post a problem. No company is going to post a problem where there are no data scientists. No data scientists are going to join a, a platform where there are no problems. And so by initially starting the first creating the first problems myself then getting you know more experimental academic problems um, I was able to build up the data scientists side of the marketplace uh, and then once I had a sufficient number of data scientists it became much easier to go out to fortune 500 and say hey this is an interesting place to put your problems these are the the data science and machine learning uh, competitions at Kaggle but Kaggle is doing a variety of other initiatives now right yeah, and that, and that's one of the things um, I'm really proud of. You know, a, lot, a lot of companies will you know, they'll find success in an area and never be able to move beyond. And w- one of the things I'm proudest of that Kaggle's been able to achieve is, yes, we started with machine learning competitions. It's not that well known, but actually compet- machine learning competitions contribute to less than a third of activity on Kaggle today. I'll walk you through sort of the journey and w- where Kaggle has gone you know, in, in expanding beyond competitions. So we noticed, so one thing that's really interesting about our competitions is the degree of discussion and collaboration. Uh, we have discussion forums where people share, uh, they share tips, they share ideas, they share approaches, they, sh- they ask questions on problems they're having as they approach the problem. And one thing we noticed that people were sharing was they were sharing a lot of code, either they'd post a GitHub repository or they would just upload their Python script uh, into our forums. I was always sad to see that those were the posts that really never got any engagement. And the problem always was that, you know, you take somebody else's code, they're using Python 2.7, you're using 3.6, they're using these libraries, you need to get the same version of Python, the same libraries, the same data set hooked up in order to get their code running. So, you know, it can be as much as four hours work just to get the, just to execute their code. And so, it's always sad that people were coming to Kaggle in order to be able to learn. The most valuable learning content was being able to play with other people's code and it was happening so rarely. Uh, So, we built a tool that we call Kaggle Kernels. Initially, this was uh, really just focused on making it easy for data scientists to share code with each other as they were competing in Kaggle competitions. Uh, and so the idea is you could hit new kernel, you'd get either a uh, hosted Jupyter notebook environment, or you would get kind of a more conventional IDE-like environment. And you could you know, just type in your code and you hit run and the code runs on our in Docker containers on our servers. So it's all invisible. All you do is you just stick your code in and it runs. You can either make that code public or private. And if you make it public, other people can fork it and start playing with your code. So it takes the process of you know, taking somebody's code uh, and and playing with it and learning from it and extending it from having to replicate their exact environment to hitting one button, a fork button, and then their code runs immediately in an environment that you can run it. That took off in a way that perhaps not even we expected. Uh, we had high hopes for Kaggle kernels. It massively increased the amount of uh, code sharing on Kaggle. Uh, so, if you go on now, any competition uh, that we launch has hundreds of kernels. The top kernels have hundreds of forks. So, it's it made competition so much richer. Then, so, you know, think about where we were then. We had Kaggle competitions and Kaggle kernels, which launched mid to late 2015. Kaggle kernels were clearly taking off. There was a need for this. So, we wanted to give people more that they could do with Kaggle kernels. Uh, and so, in uh, late 2016, we launched a public data platform where anyone on Kaggle can share data sets. So, there doesn't have to be a competition attached. But, you know, you have an interest in weather data. You have an interest in NCAA basketball data. You have an interest in you name it. Somebody has uploaded a data set on that topic. And that means for any topic you're interested in or any data set you're interested in, 
was a community of people sharing their kernels uh, on top of that data set. And so you can see what other people are doing on a data set that interests you. And, and on the flip side, um, uh, they, they, they can see what you're doing. Very powerful for reproducible research as well. Like if you're a researcher and you, you can post your the data you used and a reproducible version of your code through Kaggle kernels on that data set. So we went from, in, in the combination of Kaggle kernels and the public data platform, uh, we went from being a place where people, people went to compete in machine learning competitions to actually now a much broader community where people can really do any of their side projects. And actually about a month ago, we launched a, um, another very exciting feature, which is the ability to upload data sets uh, and keep them private and just ha- have a handful of collaborators. And so now you can use Kaggle kernels as if you, just like Google Docs. So you can have your, you know, your work projects, your personal projects uh, on Kaggle. You invite just a small number of collaborators that you have and you share with those, you, you share uh, the work just with those collaborators and they can fork, extend, edit, comment, etc. And so that is taking us from the place where people went for their machine learning competitions, the place where people went to the, for their side projects, now to the place where people can do you know, quite quite a large proportion of their data science work, whether it be commercial work or fun projects or, or whatever. Great. So I've spent a, a bunch of time on, on, on Kaggle in the machine learning competitions, in the public data sets and, and, and using the kernels. And I've had a lot of fun, but hearing about the evolution actually paints this, this broader picture, which now I have a stronger understanding of, of, of the approach behind it. And, and something I find very interesting in there is one thing this has done is taken Kaggle from what is a machine learning platform, competition, sure, but a machine learning platform to a broader data science platform and data science community as well. And one example of that, I think, is that you can go in, put in a a data set and see, and people start collaborating, maybe not on machine learning straight away, but on exploratory data analysis, for example, or data reporting or, or, or these types of things. Yeah, totally. I look at machine learning as the tip of the data science spear. And but really, for any new data set, even even if the ultimate intent is to do machine learning, the first thing you need to do is look at the data, right? And so it's always cool whenever there's a popular new data set launched on Kaggle. The first kernel that gets that starts to get meaningful traction is almost always an exploratory kernel. It's very nice once that's been written, you can look and you can understand. Uh, you don't have to redo that exploratory work. You can look at the data. You can understand uh, that the the character and the nature of that data without having to do the exploration yourself. So you can immediately jump jump to step two, uh, which is you know, the, the actual application you care about on that data. Absolutely. We'll jump right back into our interview with Anthony Goldblum after a short segment. It's now time for a segment called Tales from the Open Source. I'm here with Eric Ma, who works as a data scientist and research investigator at Novartis and has contributed his knowledge on network analysis to our Python DataCamp curriculum. He has also contributed to and authored a variety of open source data science packages, including Matplotlib, PyMC3, Bokeh, NXViz, and his latest fun project, PyJanitor, a Python port of the R package Janitor. How are you today, Eric? Hey, Hugo. It's great to be here on the podcast today. It's awesome to have you here. What are you going to be talking about today? Um, So today I'd like to talk a little bit about how you can get involved in open source contributions as a beginner. It's a topic that's close and dear to my heart because I would never have finished grad school without open source software. Open source software is definitely an essential part of data science. Before we go on to how someone can contribute to open source, though, perhaps you can tell us why you think it's important to contribute. If you're a data scientist and you're using the open source data science stack, say Pandas or Dplyr, then you're benefiting from others' work given freely to you. I'd say it makes perfect sense to give back, even if in ways that are seemingly tiny and small. That's great. Yeah. Often much of the work that goes into the stack is basically paid by someone else. Exactly. And it seems to me that there are some myths and barriers that are commonplace regarding open source contributions. Perhaps you could talk a bit about them. One big myth is that open source projects will only accept code that implements new features or that you have to have really complex ninja code skills. This most certainly isn't true. Sometimes enhancements to the examples and the docs are sorely needed as well. For example, my first open source contribution was to the matplotlib examples gallery. This was back in 2015, and I was using matplotlib heavily in my research, so I thought I'd make a contribution 
to get familiar with the API. Now, the lead developers wanted the examples gallery to be cleaned up so that it was consistently using Matplotlib's PyPlot API rather than the old PyLab API because the newer PyPlot API was going to be favored. Thus, my contribution was literally taking a bunch of import statements and replacing them with import matplotlib.pyplot as plt and import numpy as np, and then verifying that the examples worked. Thus, contributions really need not be complex at all, as long as they're addressing a legitimate need for the package. In fact, code isn't the only thing you can contribute. Open source projects often need documentation help too. And that can mean improving the clarity and wording, or adding documentation where previously it was missing, or even contributing usage examples. Cool stuff, Eric. But surely the tooling needed to make an open source contribution can be a bit complex, though, no? You're definitely right about that, Hugo. Much of open source software development uses Git as the version control system. Having some basic mastery of Git and its idioms can be very daunting at first. This is where educational materials such as software and data carpentry can help one get up to speed. In addition, education platforms like DataCamp can be super helpful too. I love how you guys have a course where you teach Git for data scientists. Exactly. The awesome curriculum is one of the true joys of working here at DataCamp. And I think an an even more important thing for newcomers is also the human dimension. That is to be working in a beginner-friendly environment. Now that means both training, and people. After all, open source software has real people behind the code. So by training, here's what I mean. Back in 2015, when I participated in the SciPy Sprints, there was explicitly a beginner-friendly Git training. We had a Git tutorial organized by the sprint organizers prior to the start of the sprints in which they showed us the basic workflow of fork, edit, pull request, and merge. In addition to that, in the human dimension, Thomas Caswell and Ben Root two lead developers of Matplotlib, really helped guide me along the way. I'd make mistakes and get confused with Git, and during the sprint, they would use the mistakes that I made as teaching moments to show me more advanced concepts that I was missing. Now, it's not just, you know, tutorials and people. Other projects have different ways of also being beginner-friendly. So, for example, Scikit-Learn's GitHub issue tracker has issues tagged as, well, beginner-friendly, which you can use as a guide to get started. Those are definitely important points, Eric. Any closing words for our podcast listeners? I think what I'd like to offer are these. Number one, don't be afraid to start with simple things. And two, find people to help you along the way. It's because of these I was able to start making contributions very soon after learning Python. And I've had a ton of fun doing so ever since. Eric, thanks for taking the time to share your experience working on open source. It's always fun chatting with you, Hugo. After that interlude, it's time to jump back into our chat with Anthony. So uh, this is all very new in, in, in the Kaggle world and very exciting. And something that happened relatively recently as well is that you were acquired by Google. So firstly, congratulations. Yeah, thanks very much. I think it's a, it's a very nice home for us. And that, that really leads into my next question. What was your trajectory that, that meant that it made sense for, for you to be acquired by Google? Yeah, so there, I guess there are two, two questions here. Why does it make sense for Kaggle? Why does it make sense for Google? From the Kaggle perspective, one thing that you know was always going to be a struggle for us is uh, Kaggle kernels, we wanted to have a meaningful free tier. So our philosophy has always been that we wanted the free tier of Kaggle kernels to be about equivalent to what you get doing machine learning on your own personal laptop. problem is we have a community of 1.5 million people. That gets very expensive for a startup and also just having the compute resources behind you to make something like that available is a non-trivial thing. The part of Google that Kaggle is part of is Google Cloud. And so there is no shortage of cloud computing uh, capacity now. And so as a result, we've been able to increase the amount of resources that we've made available to our community. More importantly is some of the things coming down the pipeline. So we're going to make GPUs available through Kaggle kernels and eventually TPUs as well. And so if you want to train your machine learning model using the latest Google hardware, this is something that the the tensor processing units, this is something that will be available relatively, the fastest way to get access will be uh, most likely through, um, through Kaggle. And 
uh, the reason Google in particular made sense is that no company uh, takes machine learning as seriously as Google. And so um, by being inside Google and part of Google, we're able to make Google machine learning technology uh, available to our community. On the flip side, uh, why does it make sense for Google? Google, you know, it's not, no secret, Amazon Web Services are, um, st- started earliest and have the most traction when it comes to building the dominant uh, or the leading world's currently leading cloud. One of the areas where Google is going to ultimately end up being stronger is Google will be the best cloud for data analytics and machine learning. And so having the world's largest data science and machine learning community operating on Google Cloud was a strategic priority uh, for Google. So it's, it's one of those things that made sense in both directions. Absolutely. And so for Google, having that community, I suppose, in terms of uh, the information it provides also as a recruiting funnel, are these the types of things that, that, that play into it? Yeah, I, w- I would say there's a couple of things. One is um, our agreement, as we s- spoke about the acquisition and what would make it work, is that we would make Google Cloud technologies available to our community, but not w- wouldn't force them on our community. And so to the extent that Google Cloud technologies really are the best machine learning and AI technologies, our community will get early access to them. Um, and that will help Google Cloud build a critical mass around those products, again, assuming they are the the, the really strong products and stronger than what's what's out what's elsewhere. So that's the first thing. You know, a lot of us went to university and we all learned MATLAB. And why do we all learn MATLAB? Because there was a critical mass around MATLAB. A lot of companies use MATLAB, uh, which meant a lot of universities taught it, which meant a lot of companies used it. With the cloud AI and machine learning tools, there is no such critical mass. And so Kaggle is one engine for building that critical mass. The other is that as we start to integrate with Google Cloud products, Google Cloud customers will have the they can enter through cloud.google.com and they get a blinking cursor or they can enter and get access to Google Cloud tools through Kaggle.com. And if they enter through Kaggle.com, they get all these data sets they can take advantage of. They get all these kernels that they can uh, fork and extend. And so, again, if you go to aws.amazon.com, you get a blinking cursor, whereas if you enter through Kaggle, you get this sort of very rich environment. And so it gives people a reason to be on Google Cloud rather than Amazon. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. And so I'm um, speaking very briefly to your MATLAB point. I'm someone who <clears throat> has used MATLAB a great deal in, in my, my previous incarnation in a- academic research, and it, it served a great purpose for me. But I, I am also critical of a lot of aspects of MATLAB. And one thing is it's also very difficult. One of the reasons it stuck for a long time is it's really difficult for institutions to get off proprietary licenses, right? Yeah, I, I would say um, when Kaggle first started, MATLAB, SAS, SAS Institute, or far more dominant on Kaggle. I think people have a preference. Uh, one of the benefits you have with these open source uh, tools like Python and R is you have these really rich package ecosystems. And I think Python is, on, on Kaggle at least, is dominating at the moment. The reason being is that Python, you know, anytime there's a... Um, the, the the machine learning frameworks, the deep learning frameworks are much, much richer on, on Python than they are on even R and... and uh, you know, the proprietary uh, software for sure. And the reason being is that, you know, if someone publishes a paper with a new technique, it's not doesn't take very long before there's an open source implementation. Uh, it takes quite a lot longer uh, for it to get into the, the, the those developments to get into the pr- proprietary software packages. Yeah, exactly. And I think you speaking to the growth of Python, and I'm sure you saw uh, recently Dave Robinson, who was at Stack Overflow, now he's chief data scientist at, at, at DataCamp. He he wrote a series of articles about the growth of Python and put a lot of it down to the growth of Pandas as well, actually. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the one thing that I had that, that Python didn't have uh, was yeah. a nice data frame. Absolutely. Data frames. So, yeah, I, I think yeah. Wes, Wes McKinney deserves a lot of credit. Very much so, Wes and, and, and the whole the whole team. I also, uh, I, I was recently at Art Studio Conf and, and JJ Allaire of Art Studio gave an incredible keynote on how they've now developed an interface to Keras for, for, for R. So he's really pushing the idea of R Studio as, sorry, of R as, as an interface programming language, among other things. So I, I think we're seeing, going to see a lot of developments on that front as well. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah. And they do, they do amazing work. R Studio is a, it's a phenomenal data science IDE. And so something you spoke to is that we have a lot of different industries and people from a lot of different industries in in the Kaggle community. And I'm wondering which industries or areas of research you see platforms like Kaggle having the largest impact. So there's a couple of ways I could slice and dice that question. So where will machine learning have the most impact in the the coming uh, decades? You know, I like the saying that 
it's kind of hackneyed in the tech industry, but the future is already here. It's just not widely distributed. Some of the areas where deep learning in particular is proving to be very strong are me- medical imaging. So Kaggle has done competitions on topics like taking MRIs and trying to di- trying to diagnose heart failure, taking images of the eye and diagnosing diabetic retinopathy, uh, taking ultrasounds and diagnosing the nerve endings that are responsible for chronic pain. The results are always strong. And it's interesting because medical imaging has been something, machine learning and medical imaging has been something people have wanted to do for, it's been a topic for many years, but before deep learning, there were very, very few success stories. Uh, I think the, the main one was uh, breast cancer imaging. You could you could do decently well in diagnosing breast cancer from machine learning algorithms, but as soon as you had somebody who was overweight or had calcites or you know some other anomaly, the the algorithms would melt down. So deep deep learning has been a real inflection point, and I think it's going to make a big difference. Machine learning, obviously, um, to the extent that it plays a role in autonomous vehicles, uh, that's another game changer. So these are not. Yeah, I'm a big believer that. As I said, that that we see the beginning, we're seeing a lot of the beginnings of the areas where machine learning is going to be most disruptive. And which fields do you think there may be too much hype around, or what what fields do you see data science and machine learning not being able to have such an impact? On? I guess I I think there's too much hype around the concept of artificial general intelligence. Maybe I'm um, I'm not looking far enough into the future or not being imaginative enough. But I feel like we periodically have step changes, right? So we used to use logistic regression and linear regression, and they were the, the main workhorses. And then uh, we had the the random forest breakthrough, and that was a big step change in what we could do with machine learning models to tackle higher dimensional data sets and so forth. And we've had you know more more incremental innovations on random forest things like gradient boosting machines, and particularly the XG boost implementation. Uh, then around 2012, we had another step change with deep neural networks that were able to really dramatically improve what we could do with unstructured data, particularly images. And I think that ha- that step change has been misinterpreted as um, the beginning of uh, you know, discovering things like art- artificial general intelligence, as opposed to a step change, and now we're on another plateau. And hopefully, eventually, you know, hopefully in the next ten years or so, we have another step change, which will then lead to another plateau, and then another step change, and another plateau. So, I think we're we're, we're making improvements on what we can do with machine learning, but I, I really don't think we have any line of sight into this idea of artificial general intelligence. And so, we're really limited to the areas where machine learning machine learning is very good on high volume tasks. So things we do uh, very repetitively. So you could look at you know, very standard legal contracts as things that um, machine learning algorithm would be able to you know, potentially do a good job on. You know, accountants doing very standard audits. A majority of an audit uh, can probably done, be done or will be able to be done by a machine learning algorithm. But as soon as you're you know, some path-breaking litigation or you're looking at uh, a very creative tax scheme. This is where machine learning is not going to be very useful. So anything that's at all novel, machine learning tends to fall down. I think we'll see machine learning automate uh, repetitive tasks in a lot of different industries, but not totally uh, upend industries. And I think, as you say, high volume tasks and tasks where we have a lot of data, d- deep learning is can be really, really good at. But, you know, one-shot learning is still a very active area of research. Right? Yeah, and I'd actually say you know, deep learning is very powerful and it's able to do a lot of really great things. But it, it's not the be-all and end-all. I mean, we still find in Kaggle competitions, if you had, have structured data that is small or medium-sized, uh, you're still much better off with feature, feature engineering and XG Boost, uh, And even some natural language processing problems, we find deep neural networks or recurrent neural networks do quite well on uh, some natural, you know, some uh, uh, text and speech problems. But we also find that there are situations where old information retrieval uh, approaches combined with XG Boost are still dominating. So I'm glad you've mentioned XG Boost a, a couple of times because I remember maybe it was probably two and a half, Years ago, when I was mucking around with XG Boost and trying to figure out the, the, the ins and outs of it, and the algorithms were very good, it wasn't necessarily so well documented at that point. And by far the best documentation I found on XG Boost was actually in Kaggle forums. Yeah, and I, and I'd say XG Boost uh, actually one of the areas where Kaggle has made a really positive contribution to the world is. I think we've made it very clear. You know, when Kaggle first started, people used to use all sorts of wacky things, you know, genetic algorithms, self-organizing maps. I've forgotten how support vector machines would be. Well, lots and lots and lots of different techniques people used to try. It became very clear very quickly that random forest was 
was the the dominant tool in the vast majority of cases. Then uh, XG Boost came along and, and uh, outdid Random Forest. And in 2012, this is a nice story, uh, George Dahl and and uh, Jeff Hinton from the University of Toronto actually used Deep Neural Networks to win a competition for Merck. Uh, then the next competition immediately after that, Vlad Min, who's now at DeepMind, used Deep Neural Networks to win that competition. And so Kaggle has been a really good place. Like if you look at the Kaggle on our blog, we, we have what we call winner, winner's posts, which basically summarize the winners. We do an interview with the winners and the winners talk about the techniques that they used in that particular competition. And I always say it's like a very good pragmatic journal on what machine learning te- techniques are working well on what problems. If you follow our blog, you kind of see the rise. You know, we've, we've had a big role to play in in helping make it very clear what techniques work best on what sort of problems and helping new techniques and new frameworks like XGBoost get attention and, and get the, the adoption that they deserve. I would argue that that uh, particularly XGBoost would not be, or, or even Random Forest would, would be one of a whole lot of techniques people tried, if not for Kaggle, helping to sort out you know, what really works for, from what doesn't. Yeah, and we'll we'll link to the Kaggle blog in in, in the show notes and and the winners post because I think they'd be very instructive for a lot of our listeners to to check those out. Totally. We'll jump right back into our interview with Anthony after a short segment. Let's now jump into a segment called Language Corner with Data Camp curriculum lead Spencer Boucher. What's on tap for this segment, Spencer? I'll answer a question with another question there, Hugo. Quick, what's the most underrated language for data science? Scala, Julia, JavaScript, Python? No, that last one was a joke. (laughs) I'm going to spend the next couple of minutes trying to convince you that it's actually the language of the Unix command line. Great. I love it. And for people who haven't heard Unix per se, you may have heard of it as shell, bash, terminal, these types of things. Exactly. So if you're a data scientist that's using a Unixy system, so that's going to be like Linux or OSX, you've probably touched the command line at some point. You might still not be aware of just how powerful it can be, however. Unix is a collection of small standalone utilities that adhere to a specific philosophy of doing one thing and doing it really well. Hugo, what are some of your favorite Unix tools? Firstly, Spencer, I love the command line. One of my favorite Unix tools is grep, which allows me to search a bunch of text files that I'm, that I may have in a directory. Uh, I also love head, which allows me to print the first three or five or whatever I choose, uh, lines of a file of data that, that I want to check out. I also love sorting s- stuff. So this is like, order by in, in, in database queries. What I love is to be able to sort my lines in a file. And then finally, perhaps my favorite Unix tool is, is the pipe, which allows me to do a series of operations which output and input text and pipe them together in order to do something a bit more complex. Yes, exactly. I'll talk more about the pipe later. A few more commands that I really like, there's find, which is kind of like your file browsers, uh, you know, search GUI on steroids. There's sed, which edits streams of characters, um, which can really come in handy. Uh, there's also a, something called unique. That was one tool that I really like that filters for unique rows in a particular text file. Uh, and then something else that really comes in handy is uh, the cat function. Uh, so the cat command uh, concatenates files together just like a union operation would in, uh, in something like SQL. Those are all great. And I also actually want to mention I love WC, which is word count. So I can count the number of words, characters, lines in any any given file or, or directory. Yes, exactly. So what makes these tools so great, Spencer? Why would someone ever want to use this collection of tools rather than a programming language like R or Python? Well, for one thing, this set of tools generally has a very rich API that's optimized for the 80% use case. So that means instead of having to code anything yourself – it's more than likely that a simple command flag will handle whatever task you have at hand just right. Once you've had the chance to play around with them, these tools really become second nature and you'll find yourself not even needing to break out a full programming language to do little one-off tasks. And on top of that, they're always going to be available to you in pretty much any scientific computing environment, even if your favorite programming language might not be. And Unix command tools, as I said, are designed to work together, right? They all take a stream of text as input, perform some operation, and return a new stream of text as output. Yes, and that's the real killer feature here. 
that kind of composability just makes it a snap to chain a series of operations together. For example, it's a natural operation to say, find all the CSVs in a directory matching a particular regex, concatenate them, remove duplicate rows, order by one particular field, and then write the top five rows of that result out to a new CSV, all in one chain. If you're familiar with Magritar from R, or you're used to chaining method calls in pandas, then this is going to be really familiar to you. Okay, Spencer, I'm sold. But what if our listeners aren't quite convinced yet? All right, well, if they need a few more reasons, here's two more important side benefits to the streaming nature of Unix pipelines. First of all, you don't have to load a whole data set into memory to operate on it. Well, so think about the last time that you tried to load some giant data set into a data frame in R or Python, and everything got sluggish. A properly set up Unix pipeline won't suffer that same problem. Second, because Unix tools operate on streams of text, it's incredibly easy to take a Unix pipeline and parallelize it, giving you a linear speed boost up to the number of CPU cores on your computer. And it's not uncommon for that to be a factor of 16 or 32 on modern laptops. So before you fire up that Hadoop cluster on AWS, do a quick check to make sure that a Unix command won't do the trick for you instead. You might be surprised. Thanks, Spencer. And for our listeners out there, we're going to include the following resources in the show notes. But if you want to check out uh, some educational content on the command line, check out our Introduction to Shell course on DataCamp, check out the Software Carpentry course, along with the O'Reilly Unix Power Tools. Fantastic. Thanks, Spencer, once again. Yep. Anytime, Hugo. Time to get straight back into our chat with Anthony Goldblum. So something we're really circling around is is one of the aspects that I genuinely love about Kaggle the most, and that's that's this concept of of community and all the all the people you meet there, all the ideas you get thrown around. You see ideas rise and concepts and techniques and different methodologies rise to the top when you have this critical mass of uh, of people working on on these challenges. Uh, so my question for you is, I suppose it's a double uh, a double prong question. What is the role of community in data science in your mind, and how do you think about promoting community at Kaggle? I would say it's not something I have a super well-informed answer on. I think that you know Kaggle happened to stumble into becoming a community. Uh, we built something, people liked it, and our approach to expanding the range of things that we offer uh, to our community in order to strengthen it is really to see how people are, what people are doing on Kaggle, and trying to support the things that uh, people want to be doing. I explained that the origins of Kaggle kernels it was being you know born out of watching people discuss different techniques on the forums and wanting to give people a more efficient users a more efficient way uh, to, to you know share code uh, I mentioned that the public data platform was born out of the fact that you know we can only launch a certain number of competitions each month uh, and there was appetite for people to share more data sets and so we thought well why don't we take ourselves out of the loop and allow just allow the community to themselves share and so I'd say that as far as our approach to community management and growing the community is concerned, it's it's really watching what the community does, how they use Kaggle, uh, and and reacting uh, to what we see the community doing uh, in order to continue to hopefully build more and more useful things. I'm not sure if that directly answers your question. No, no, it does, because it really suggests a very organic approach in which you're in constant dialogue with the community. And I think the development of, of kernels and um, public data platform, as you said, speaks to this. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting paradigm of, of this because they actually grew, as you say, out of the needs of the community that, that you were servicing while listening to them. So it, it does answer the question in, in that sense. As you're the CEO of, of, of Kaggle, um, I'm, I'm going to ask you <laughs> to predict something for me. <laughs> so my question is, what does the future of data science look like to you? And interpret that how you will in two, five, t- ten years. Where is this this discipline heading? So firstly, I've got to caveat uh, this prediction by saying I, I said at the beginning of this episode that I won this uh, internship to the Economist magazine. I didn't tell you how I won it. So I won it with an article that was it was written in 2007. How, how the, the competition works is that you put you have to submit an essay that looks like an essay that someone might, that the economist might publish or an article that they might publish. And my article was about why the uptick in subprime mortgage defaults wasn't a problem. I don't know what all the fuss is about. Of course, in 2008, that went on to cause the global financial crisis. So my, 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 my track record <laughs> on predictions is fairly weak. Yes. That's brilliant. So we could actually take whatever you say and go the opposite direction. Go the opposite, okay, yeah, which, which, by the way, is is just as useful. If, if somebody is a phenomenal, reliably an excellent predictor or a horrible predictor, each of them are <laughs> you know, b- both are equally reliable, right? Agreed. Um, 
as long as you know which one they are. <laughs> so, you know, my view is, uh, as I said, the, the f- future is already here. It's just not widely distributed. And, uh, you know, com- companies like Google, I think, are a bit of a sign of what's to come. Uh, my view is that in, in future, um, data science will be a play a much bigger role in decision making. I think that uh, very often decisions are made uh, with the absence of data, not because data doesn't exist, but because um, going from data sitting in a data warehouse or you know, out on some public place on the web and into a usable form uh, that can help inform a decision in an intelligent way uh, is currently a, a heck of a lot of work. And I think as the tools get better and as we train more data scientists, the friction in going from data to decision is going to get dramatically less. And as a result, uh, the number of decisions um, made off the back of data end up being you know, a much higher proportion of decisions end up getting made off the back of uh, data. So, you know, what does this mean? It means that, that life runs more efficiently, right? You know, you look at some of the industries that Kaggle has worked in. Fewer oil and gas wells get drilled that shouldn't be drilled because they're not going to produce. You know, f- fewer people are dying, you know, get, get a, going through an airport security line are pulled aside um, because the the algorithm that TSA is using detects a threat, threat object that isn't there. So ju- it, it means that life runs smoother, means that we we waste fewer resources, whether it be, you know, in the TSA case, we waste less people's time, whether it be in the oil and gas case, you know, less environmental, you know, less drilling, so less money wasted, less environmental impact. I, I think data science is going to have a, a, a huge role to play in making the world run better. As a part of that that future of data science, what does the future of Kaggle look, look like to you? And how far ahead do you, do you, do you think about this? Yeah, I, I'm really excited. I think that Kaggle has, uh, I've said this a couple of ways, I think Kaggle has made a really good contribution to the world so far. And I think we barely scratched the surface of what we're capable of. In my view, that the, you know, what Kaggle wants to be a big part of making it easier to go from raw data to decision. We you know, we've, we've started doing that. Uh, Kaggle Kernels allows you to, you know, you want to do sentiment analysis on, on your tweets. Well, you t- go into our search box and type sentiment, sentiment analysis Twitter in colon kernels. Uh, and you can find probably about 200 other kernels that have used sentiment, done sentiment analysis on tweets. You don't have to start with a blinking cursor. You can start with somebody else's code. You want to, you, you have, you have this, you want to join weather data to store sales data rather than crawling around the web for all the different weather data sets that might be useful uh, through the Kaggle public data platform, particularly as it continues to get more traction. It currently has, I think, over 13,000 data sets, getting many, many more over the, over the coming year. You'll, be, you'll have a single place that you can go to find all the data sets that might be useful to you to join to. So the future of Kaggle is really supporting the future of data science. The future of data science, the future of data science is making it easier for da- decisions to be made off the back of data. Uh, and the future of Kaggle is to make data science easy to do for data scientists. Absolutely. And I think this definitely paints a very bright, bright future for data science and, and Kaggle, which I, I'm totally uh, aligned with and am <clears throat> pretty much in, in agreement with. I, I wonder what type of challenges to, to your mind data science will, will, will face as an industry or certain caveats we need to be aware of when, when moving in this direction. Yeah, I think that um, Nate Silver says, says it really well. Every time he forecasts uh, election results, he said, if I'm right, I'm going to get more credit than I deserve. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to get more blame than I deserve. Data science is going to be wrong. Uh, just statistically, in, in many, many cases, it's going to be wrong. And so uh, you will find that this will every, every time data science is wrong, people will blame it more than it deserves to be blamed. And so one challenge is that it, you know, it's not a, it's not a it's not totally prophetic. It's not going to be right all the time. And having it, having decision makers understand that with data science they'll be right more often uh, than they would be wrong if they weren't using data science is quite a nuanced argument to make. And it's one that that data scientists, you know, as we try to become more and more influ- influential in the companies that we work for, uh, it's a really tricky and nuanced message for us to communicate, uh, you know, to those who are those who are relying on us for deci- to inform their decisions. For sure, and I think part of the real challenge is communicating uncertainty, right? And <laughs> because people want yes or no, or sixty percent, or seventy percent, as opposed to sixty plus or minus thirty, right? Yeah, totally. Uncertainty is a is a is a it's a concept that uh, I think all of us. There's a lot of behavioral studies on this. Human beings are not really wired necessarily to understand the nuances uh, of uncertainty. 
So, Anthony, to close out, I'm wondering if you have any final call to action for our listeners out there. Yeah. I, I, for those of you who aren't currently on Kaggle, come check us out uh, if you're learning. We have a new area called Kaggle Learn, which uh, has some notebooks that you can fork that will help you get started. Uh, there are also the data camp tutorials that take you through uh, how to do well in a Kaggle competition. If you're, uh, you, you've been on Kaggle and you haven't been around in a while, come and check out Kaggle Kernels and the public data platform. And if you want to be playing with some some of the cutting edge and benchmarking yourself, you should get into our uh, competitions. We have lots of competitions on just about any any kind of uh, uh, type of data set you might be interested in. We probably have a competition for you that will interest you. Fantastic. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining our conversation with Anthony about Kaggle and the future of data science. We saw how Kaggle's recent products Kernels for reproducible, shareable data science workflows and the public data platform arose from serious practical needs of the Kaggle community and how now, combined with the machine learning competitions, they provide a fully-fledged data science ecosystem. We saw how Kaggle's acquisition by Google bodes well for the future of cloud-based data science, particularly with the upcoming GPUs and TPUs available to Kagglers. We also saw a wide variety of use cases for machine learning and discuss the particular use cases that Anthony sees being immediately powerful, which include medical imaging and the development of autonomous vehicles. Make sure to check out our next episode, a conversation with Sandy Griffith, Principal Methodologist on the Quantitative Sciences team at Flatiron Health, a healthcare technology and services company focused on accelerating cancer research and improving patient care. Their mission is to improve lives by learning from the experience of every cancer patient. Join Sandy and me discussing how Flatiron is leveraging data science in the fight against cancer. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugo Bound and DataCamp at DataCamp. You can find all our episodes and show notes at datacamp.com slash community slash podcast.